Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. On this show, the team of experts from Bright Horizons College Coach aim to demystify college admissions and finance. From choosing the right college, developing a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and more. Each episode will help guide your family through the various steps of the process. Now, here is your host. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. I'm very excited. It's my first show of the new year. New year, new you. That's what I'm hoping. That's what I'm saying to the year. New year, new you. We Enough of 2020. We are ready to turn a page. Um, anyway, it's a good my first show, and it's a great one, of course. Uh, we are going to be talking about med school gap years. We're also going to be talking about the do's and don'ts for asking for more money. If you get some scholarship dollars, you might feel like this is all you can get, but actually you can ask for more, and we have some tips on how to do that appropriately. But before we get to that, we have been talking uh, on the show about um, some of our individual educators' personal experiences, and I'm very excited to welcome Alex B- Bickford to the show today. Hi, Alex. Hi, Beth. How are you? I'm good, thanks. So Alex and I work together. He also is a former financial aid officer at Southern New Hampshire University. And what's so interesting to me about Alex's story is that it starts with not wanting to go to college at all and ends with a master's degree. And he did it all in five years, So, which is a short time frame to start college and get a master's degree. So Alex, Paint me a picture. You're a senior in co- in high school, and yeah. you have no desire to go to college. None whatsoever. I think it was probably like October uh, of my senior year, and my dad is asking me, what are you going to do next year? And I said, I don't know. Like, <laughs> we'll figure it out. Like, right. I'll I'm a boy. A I'm exactly. 18. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. And I'd always been kind of like, a, a, he, he always described me as enough to get by kind of, kind of kid. I did did just what I needed to do in the classes I liked. I probably did pretty well in the classes I didn't like not as well. Uh, and he said, well, all right, you have two choices. He said, you can get a job, work full time and not live here. Mm-hmm. Uh, or you can go to college. <laughs> I said, uh, okay. Uh, but I had no, no guidance on, you know, how to do it, how to sure. get there. Just thinking about what I wanted to major in was just, mind-boggling to me how to figure that out. And I said, well, I'm working at the country club. I'm cooking there. Uh, I'll, I'll find a culinary school. And, okay. And that's that's where I started. Okay. So you start then at, and, and you start actually at Southern New Hampshire University, correct? Yeah, it was New Hampshire College at the time, but yeah, Southern New Hampshire University. And and what tell us about the program. And so you decided to look for culinary arts and that was close by. And so you, you opted for that place. Yeah. So I, I applied to three schools. Uh, that was the most, I think, traditional college experience. Uh, and I'm very glad I chose that one for what was to come afterwards, because had I gone to one of the other two options, it was, it was very much a culinary hospitality school. Okay. Uh, and that would have been kind of where I ended up. Um, so, I mean, the program at Southern New Hampshire was a two-year program. It was an associate's degree program. Uh, and I think for folks who really love to cook and for folks who are really passionate about it, right. it was beautiful. It probably was like the perfect program. Uh, for students who maybe just ended up there, uh, it like was... You. Right, exactly. It was, yeah. I had a good time. I enjoyed it. It was fun. I liked to cook. But it wasn't for me. 
Got it. You quickly, how long did it take you to figure out, huh, this job at the country club and doing this for the rest of my life is probably not for me. Was that quickly? It was very quickly. I would say it was a matter of, uh, I I was working in the restaurant at the college uh, one night and said, my friends are out They're They're having fun. They're doing this stuff. And if, if this is a career I want, I'm going to be here. Right. Uh, I'm not going to be out enjoying it. So I, I decided pretty much within the first semester that this was probably not for me. So then what do you do? You've decided you're in a very specific program. You know, it's not what you want to do. What, how'd you handle that? So I started thinking, okay, uh, I want to transfer. Uh, mm-hmm. I want a different major. I, I like politics. I like history. I like, uh, you, you know, law maybe. And I start kind of thinking of all these things. And so I went to one of my professors and said, you, you know, this is not for me. I don't know what to do, uh, but it's not for me. Mm-hmm. And she said, okay, you got a couple of different options. You are now at this point at the end of your second semester. Mm-hmm. Like we're about to finish the year here. Uh, certainly we can, we, you can look at transferring within the school. You can look at transferring outside of the school. Uh, you just got to think about how far that might set you back. Right. Uh, and so if your goal is to get a four-year degree in something different, you can probably finish this program here, uh, be it not what you want, uh, and then transfer in the school because they'll accept the first two years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you could probably get a bachelor's degree in something more up your alley. Got it. So that's so interesting. What is also interesting to me, and I'd be curious about what of this was internal because you were already in school mm-hmm. and what was paternal in terms of, well, remember, if you leave school, you leave our house. Right. What, you know, what prevented you from dropping out versus, yeah. you know, saying, hey, I don't want to do this, but I'm going to do something else. Yes. So it was a couple of things. First of all, the, the program, I was still enjoying the program. It, okay. even, while it wasn't going to be my career, it was not, you know, I was doing well. I had friends. Uh, I liked the community there. Uh, I didn't want to go home. Uh, okay. My friends were all off at college too. So I was going to come home to, you know, I, I don't know what. Right. Family, but but not what an 18-year-old is looking to go home for. Right. Of course. Uh, so, so it was nothing, you know, it, un, unlike students who are struggling academically or might be struggling socially, uh, that wasn't it for me. Uh, so I said, there's got to be a way to kind of power through and do something a little bit different. Got it. So I I think that I I like that just to highlight that a little bit, because in some of the other stories we've heard, it was people really, you know, taking a different path because they didn't like it. In your case, going even in a program that you didn't love proved to be a good choice because it got you to college. Right. And then once you were there, you were like, oh, this isn't bad. I'll figure it out. Well, and I realized that there was a world out there. Yes. Uh, I, you know, I didn't, I didn't kind of see that before, before college. And so the thought of choosing a major was overwhelming to me. And I, in, like you said, had I had to choose what I was really going to do, I would have never gone. Right. And so this just kind of opened the door to something. Right. You committed to two years, like, okay, right. I'll do this. And right. then you get there and then you kind of figure it out. And right. I, you know, what I like about this again, is we do talk a lot about, and I totally appreciate not necessarily wanting to spend a lot of money to go to school if you don't know what you want to study. And yet so many students either go without knowing what they want to study or pick something or say they know, but then they change their mind and how that could still be a success story. So Speaking of, let's get back to your success story. So 
you so it sounds like you did stick it out then. You you ultimately earned that associate's degree and then transferred, correct? So I, I stayed I stayed within the school uh, and I went into kind of a different program uh, and it was kind of a similar kind of conversation of okay, if I don't want to lose everything here, if I went to tra- traditional business program, you know, a lot of those credits probably would be lost. And I would mm-hmm. be looking at uh, another year, maybe a five-year uh, bachelor's program. And so I, I work with my uh, my advisor at that point and said, hey, listen, you know, the, the hospitality program is designed to take you in. Right. Uh, but there are a lot of electives built in there and we can change those electives because you're talking business and you're talking education. Let's change those electives into the business electives or the education electives. And while you'll end up with a hospitality degree at the end, you'll have a lot of experience in a lot of different areas mm-hmm. and you should have a, a good idea of then maybe some areas you might want to go into. Right. And also you've got credits that are probably more likely to transfer. Exactly. Right? That's yeah. Exactly so that's it. key. So, so you did transfer. What did you transfer into ultimately? So I ultimately, uh, at, towards the end of my bachelor's degree, was working in financial aid and they said, hey, are you interested in staying on for a master's? And something that had never even crossed my mind. Uh, but when, when free tuition gets thrown at you, and especially for a kid who didn't know what the heck he was going to do in a year, right, uh, right. that was a really, really exciting offer. Uh, and so I ended up doing a master's in business education. Uh, and I think that was, so that was the first time that really to any big degree, I had classes outside of this very niche area. Yep. Uh, so it was a really, it was a really good difference for me. Uh, and it was just something that uh, that I was excited to to be outside of an area. It was four years in an area that I just did because it was the easy way out. To be to be frank, it was the easy sure. way out. Uh, and finally, in an area that uh, that I think was a little bit more up my alley. And so, was that when you were working in the financial aid office? Was that like a work study job, or was it a yeah. real part time job? So it was at, at first, it was a work study job, and I was having to be there over the summer, and the phones were ringing like crazy. And so I was answering phones and they said, well, how are you answering these questions? Uh, and I said, because I've been, you know, you were the file that always got, I was always the file that got audited. My dad always filed late. My dad was never did his taxes on time. So it was like a complicated system. So I was always on the phone with financial aid. Right. So, so, I, so I said, I kind of know some of this stuff. <laughs> That's hilarious. So you have dad to thank, uh, you know, sort of like yes. roundabout. That's roundabout. funny. I never yeah. thought about that. That's a, I'll have to call and thank him. You will. You'll have to reach out. <laughs> to him. But I think that's another great piece here, right, is um, actually we just had a blog. I think Shannon wrote a blog um, a week or so ago about working while you're in college and whether or not that's a good thing. And here's a great example. You have an entire career, right, based on just a work-study job. That Yeah, absolutely. And and even if I – so even if I hadn't done that – I still have, you know, just from my my work-study days in financial aid, I had literally – four moms and a dad like <laughs> it, it, that, that were there that were always really concerned that you know everything was going okay for me right uh, so it's just people outside uh that are really looking out for you uh so i think it's awesome if you can work through college yeah no i mean i think that is um so many really wonderful things about this and and great examples of obviously it took your father kind of pushing you, and then you also seeking out your advisor. And, and that's another thing I wanted to highlight is when you realized it wasn't for you, you went to someone who then was able to help you. I think sometimes students 
immediately go to their parents and right. as a parent, right? Like I don't really necessarily know right. um, what's in front of you or, you know, how you might be able to work this out or you go to your friends or you don't go to anyone right? and you suffer in silence or, you know, you just drop out or whatever. But in this situation, you kind of used all the resources around you and, you got a work study job, which you must have, you know, which you were assigned and needed. And then that ends up turning into a master's degree and a career. And it's just such a testament to making use of the people who are in that environment to support you. That's right. If the college didn't have all the resources that it had, uh, and that's what colleges have, they have these resources and they're there for a reason. Right. Uh, had I not used them, you're right, I would have transferred or I would have dropped out or I would have something. It, it certainly wouldn't have been the path that I ended up on. Um, and who knows if it would have been you know, a, a positive path. It could have very easily turned into something not as positive. Well, and it could have very easily turned into a lot more money. I mean, yeah. that is, <laughs> that's at the core of all of this, right? right? Is right. You you change your mind, and that's a situation that often we see students transfer and not all their credits transfer, and they end up having to add another year. Not only did you graduate on time with your four-year degree, but you added another year on, and it sounds like it was paid for. Even. It, it, yeah, it was. And, and like you said, had I transferred, it probably would have been that year just to get out of my bachelor's degree yes. for an extra year of cost. Right, exactly. And instead, you had the four-year cost and then throw in a master's degree, and that's right. free. So, yeah, that's pretty uh, – any advice for people listening or parents of, of – I don't want to pick on boys. I have a boy. Right. But maybe boys who are a little under-motivated or girls yeah. Um, yeah. or, you know, any of that. So, it depends on where they are. If, they are, if they're in the high school process, uh, if, you, if you have a brain – uh, if, if you if you if you like working with your brain, even if you don't know what it is, uh, even if it's just a community college, start taking some classes in things that you're interested in. Mm-hmm. It may not not be the things that end up being your career, but things that interest you, uh, right. because I think that helps stir motivation. And once you're at college, definitely use the resources around you. Those those people there want to help you, uh, and they may not need know you need help. Uh, right. Me looking at me, I was doing well, uh, everything was going fine. They didn't know I needed help. Right. Uh, so had, had I not been kind of pushed to go and, and seek that help, uh, like I said, things would have ended up very differently. Yeah. I have to say, knowing you, I would guess that you were projecting an outward, you were <laughs> probably lots of friends going to yeah. class, very engaged and they would never have known. So never that's, would have known. <laughs> yeah. That's really good advice. Alex, thanks so much for taking the time to join us and share your story today. I really appreciate it. Thanks Beth. It was great seeing you. All right. Um, We are going to take a really quick break. And when we come back, we're going to be talking about gap years and medical school. So don't go away. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. 
Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everybody. We're uh, talking today about gap years and medical school. And I'll be honest, I had never really thought about a gap year in medical school, but my lovely colleague, um, Lauren DiProspero, who is our resident expert on all things medical school, having been uh, director of admissions at both Stanford and Columbia medical schools, is joining us today to share information about this. Hi, Lauren. Hi, Beth. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, med school gap year. What is this? Is this kind of like when you take a gap year between high school and college? What's it all mm-hmm. about? Yeah, so it's time off between graduating from college and starting medical school. So in that sense, it's similar to that year that you might take before college. Um, but what's different is that in this case, work work experience is nearly universal. And some people will take multiple years off. So we may use the term gap year, but it might be gap years, depending on the, the individual. Okay. So um, you mentioned work experience. So I know that, for example, when I think about an MBA, one of the things that's very common is that you don't typically go right from your undergraduate to an MBA. And yet, I know for medical school, quite a few of the, the my friends in college who went to medical school went right from college into medical school. Um, so who, who are the students for whom that's generally not the best idea? Yeah. So it is becoming very common to take multiple years or to take a year. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the application process starts so very early. Mm-hmm. It opened the application, the AMCAS for the allopathic schools opens in May, which mm-hmm. if you kind of back up taking the MCAT, you're really making this decision in you know mid-year of your junior year if you're mm-hmm. in college. And so um you know, it, it's become more and more common. The age of, of matriculation has crept up over the years. So, you know, it's not surprising that back when I was in college, when you were in college, a lot of people were going straight on. But the AMCAS, which is the body that oversees allopathic medical school admissions, you know, has some data that the average age of matriculants is 24. Mm-hmm. Um, and 64% of students who matriculate to medical school report taking one or more years um, between uh, college and medical school. Um, and it can be for all sorts of different reasons that that people decide to do this. Yeah. I mean, I know that one of the challenges I see in students who are in high school who want to go to medical school, and this is actually something we used to joke about when I was in admissions at Penn, was just how many questions I would get about how, because when I was at Penn, we didn't, ha- we don't, did not, and Penn still does not have a seven, eight-year automatic into medical school program, but Penn State did. Mm -hmm. And so I would occasionally get the student who confused Penn with Penn State and would ask me about that. And, you know, it just became this running joke about these kids who want to be in medical school tomorrow. And I see it, you know, they've decided this is what they want to do and they want to do it right away. And yet what we also see is they get to college and sometimes they change their mind. It just feels Mm -hmm. like so much education 
you almost want to be sure of it. Do yes. you, is, you know, so tell us about some of the reasons why yeah. you said there are a lot. I'd love yeah. to kind of understand them. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, one of the common ones is lack of experience in a certain area. So what are the gaps in your application? Because one of the things that you want to do is to be able to assess what does your application to medical school look like? What are the gaps, right? Mm-hmm. And so maybe you didn't research during Mm -hmm. undergraduate. Maybe your clinical work isn't as strong as it could be. Maybe you have a mediocre or low GPA and you need that time either to show continued success through your senior year or maybe to do a post-bac or to take a handful of classes because maybe you're a few, um, you know, science classes short. Um, You know, there are also letters of recommendation, right? Do you have enough individuals that are willing to write letters for you. It can be a substantial amount, um, you know, that you have to ask for those letters of recommendation. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe you've met with your pre-med advisor and that person is recommending taking additional time. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, like you said, the uncertainty, maybe you're wavering in your commitment to medical school, which is absolutely okay, right? That time Mm -hmm. off can help you target your medical exposure and your exposure to healthcare and help you decide that. And honestly, I think that one of the the biggest reasons to take a gap year is just a chance to step off the treadmill, Mm -hmm. right? You're going, going, going. You know, most of our listeners are still in high school or families of students still in high school. That's a long time to just keep going, right? Mm -hmm. And when you have this goal of medical school, it's sometimes tackled with the same intensity when they step foot on campus for the first time. And healthcare burnout is very real, right? pandemic notwithstanding, it is a real thing. Um, You know, and a year or two away from school can really help you become a more successful med student and then a more successful doctor when you make it to that point. Right. And, you know, I'll tell you, um, anecdotally, my my best friend from college is a doctor and um, she did take some time off. She actually ended up doing a master's program and then applied to medical school. Um, But one of the things that she shared was when she got to medical school, you know, she was, she had a, a tough major in college. You know, we went to a, a good, you know, tough school and that med school was substantially more difficult. She's mm-hmm. like, I'm really having to learn how to study in a completely different way. I feel like for the first time, and this is someone who'd been a top student her whole life. Mm-hmm. And so I can imagine that if you've just come out of college, which was challenging, and then you go directly into the next step and it's, twice as hard that you really, it would be, I don't know how she would have done it. I think she would say that too, if she had gone right away. Yeah. And a very apt, um, one of my students in medical school once said that attending medical school, your first year is like drinking out of a fire hose. Yeah. It's very intense. Even though most students come in with a preparation for it, it's very hard. There's no sugarcoating it. It is very, very hard. And any medical student will tell you that. Yeah. And, you know, I think at a lot of colleges, um, it's often harder to get in than it is to stay in. And I know medical school, there's no room for people to become doctors who can handle it. So there, you know, no great inflation. You need to learn it. (laughs) If you don't pass gross anatomy, you can't be operating on people. Um, So if you are listening and you decide you're a student um, or the parent of a student who's considering medical school, um, and you decide, you know, gap year sounds like a really good idea. What are the, what's the first step that you would take 
if yeah. you're that student. Yeah. Well, I know I say this every time on the, on the show talking about medical school, but I very much recommend talking to your pre-med advisor. Yeah. Um, and the reason is, is that, like I said, they can assess those shortcomings in your medical school preparation that can help you figure out the best way to spend that time yes. because you want to be smart about that. And it can be different for each person. Um, you know, like I said, one could be looking for research. One could be looking for clinical Maybe a student has everything they need, but they just love research and want to try it. That person can help you identify opportunities. And that neutral, knowledgeable professional knows how to help you figure that out and right. knows how to assess, are you going to be a successful medical student and you know, applicant and when, at what point? Right. And I, I think the underlying message here, especially because as you say, every time we talk, it's you mentioned pre-health advising. If you are thinking medical school is going to be in your future, when you look at undergraduate programs, you should be really investigating what they do for their pre-health students, right? For for pre-health advising. Yeah. Okay. So, um, you know, what do, when you were on the other side of the desk and reading applications, what were the kinds of things that you saw students spending their time on? It does sound like it's going to be different for every student based on what they need to improve on, but I'd be curious, what are some things that you remember feeling like, oh yeah, that was a good use of their time? Yeah, absolutely. Um, medical scribe is, is very common so that hmm. somebody's sitting in the room and, and writing down what the doctor is saying for medical records. It's great insight because you see the the patient-doctor interaction from a third party as opposed to being the one there. Um, And you're asking questions of the doctor afterwards, right? That's not necessarily your job to be asking those questions, but But it's a byproduct of being a a coworker, right? Right. Um, A research assistant, a medical translator, if you have language skills, um, maybe you're interested in in health policy, public health policy, that's a possibility. Um, Becoming a CNA, a certified nursing assistant, is a great way to get that like hands-on exposure to the healthcare field. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe as a patient advocate, as a hospital um, contract tracers. Contact tracers are in <laughs> high demand right now. Important right now, right? But but are even when it's not a pandemic, there are routinely contact tracers for different diseases in cities and states um, across the country. And then many students are doing those volunteer-oriented uh, programs like Teach for America or City Year or Peace Corps. Um, you know, and then there are the students who maybe need the academic support and are doing a master's program or post-bac. Mm-hmm. And that master's program could be because could be because you like the subject. It doesn't have to be a record enhancer. Maybe you like public policy or whatever it might be that you want to get that degree before you go on. Um, the one thing to note with a master's degree is that it will count in a GPA. So, <laughs> so if you're going to do you it, have those, if you're going to do it, um, that is going to be part of your record to medical school. So right. um, Make- chances are you're going to want to try and do well anyway, but worth mentioning that that grad school grades do still count in the medical school process. Yes. Which makes sense, especially if you're doing something ideally related yes. to medicine, right? What if someone did, and actually I throw this out there, like, Mm -hmm. they were like, I love English, I'm going to do a master's in English, and then I'm going to apply to medical school. Did you you see something like that ever? Or was it usually related? Interesting. Um, It was usually related. But as long as you have all of the key aspects, I don't see why not. Yeah, right. As long as you have that research and that clinical experience, you have all of the science, right? Like, as long as you have all of that, 
So maybe you're getting your master's in English and you're a medical scribe at night or yeah. whatever it might be. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah there's no, no, res- yeah, there's no restriction on what you can do. So long as you have those, that, that basic, um, the basic parts of a medical school application. Cool. Any last advice for students out there? One I will throw out last yeah. advice is Lauren's been on the show a number of times over the past few months, and we've been talking about a lot of things related to medical school. So if you are just now coming to this first segment and saying, oh, I want to hear more from Lauren, well, go into our archives. If you search on our blog, um, we blog about every podcast. So if you're wondering when she appeared, you can find the blog right up, and then that will give you the data that the podcast aired on. But what about your advice, Lauren? Absolutely. And there are other blogs as well that don't make it on the radio show. So certainly there's a wealth of information there as well. That's true. Um, I think, you know, I kind of two last minute pieces of advice. One is to figure out as you're planning for your gap year, which if you're a junior in college, you're starting to think about whether or not that makes sense for you. Mm -hmm. So plan for your gap year, but also plan for what the timeline might be for applying to medical school for you. Got it. So that you can kind of work backward, right? Mm-hmm. That way you're meeting any deadlines for your pre-med advisor because they likely help out alumni who are applying to medical school, right? Mm-hmm. That you understand what you need to start this process because I think it can be easy to lose track of time, right? Going from college to the workforce, the, the year has a different feeling to it. There's no natural, like now it's spring semester, now it's summer, right? right? kind of, it doesn't fold into one, but it can be easy to lose track of that and to keep, keep on that timeline and knowing that that can be adjusted. Maybe you do want to take that extra year. You can push it off, but always saying, okay, what is my timeline? Um, And then I think that, you know, you can do anything healthcare related or get a master's in English, (laughs) but ultimately do something that you enjoy right? Mm -hmm. If you're curious about public health policy, pursue it. If you love research, do that. Because at the end of the day, this is something that you're going to be talking a lot in your medical school interviews, Mm -hmm. you know, on top of it being your life and you want to do something you enjoy, you're also leveraging this year in this application process. It might end up in your essays. It'll definitely be talked about in your interviews. So, really make the most of it, enjoy it. Maybe you don't get your first choice job, but look for something in the field that you are interested in and have to round out your application with. And it'll just make that time more enjoyable and really clarify what you want to do in the future with medical school. Yeah. Such great advice as always, Lauren. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, absolutely. Uh, Okay, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to be talking about some tips for asking for more scholarship money, uh, which... I think regardless of where we're at in the current world, uh, who doesn't want more money, but particularly now when things are a little unstable, um, uh, I think we have some good advice for you. So don't go away. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. 
That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everybody. We are talking about scholarship money. Who doesn't want to talk about scholarship money? Uh, And I have with me my colleague, who also happens to be a former financial aid officer at uh, Emerson Elms and Mount Holyoke Colleges, and was a VP of Education, uh, Finance, and Student Loans at J.P. Morgan Chase. Hi, Stacey. It's Stacey McFeeders. Hi, Beth. How are you? Good to Um, see you. Nice to see you as well. We're talking about one of our favorite subjects today, and that is asking for more money. It's not necessarily a fun thing to do, but the end result, if it turns out the way you want it to, is wonderful because what it can do is open up opportunities to attend a school that perhaps was a little bit out of reach, but now with just a little bit more money could be within reach. Um, I think a lot of our listeners aren't even aware that you could ask for more when you're given scholarship dollars. And so um, we wanted to talk about that today, mostly to share how to go about that in the right way, because if you do it in the wrong way, you're probably not going to get more, right? Right. Exactly. Exactly. Although although one thing I will say is that they're not going to take money away from you unless you really are uh, just asking, they won't take it away. Correct. But if you don't act in the right way, they may not give you more. All right. I kind of already, our first bullet point was can you ask for more money? So tell us a little bit about why that's really an okay thing to do. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. It's funny. I refer to this as the most wonderful time of the year in college finance because by and large, it's not a fun process. Um, So so when, when, you know, asking the question, can you negotiate for higher merit scholarships? The answer is you can try. Absolutely. And in fact, we always encourage folks to try. Um, The reality is schools have an amount of money that they make available. Uh, they give it to the students that they desire the most. Obviously, that's the process of, of awarding merit scholarships. Although, as a parent, I'd love to believe that they're going to give my, my, my student money just because she's fabulous. It's probably more likely because they want her to enroll. So the, the, the short answer is yes, you absolutely can negotiate for higher merit scholarships. Right. And is it the same thing as when you're asking for more financial aid? It's really not. Yeah. So what we want to do is we want to differentiate between uh, need-based financial aid that is that is awarded to you as a part of your um, having completed the FAFSA versus the money that's coming from directly from admissions as sort of a part of the acceptance process. Recognizing that you will see that merit scholarship in your financial aid offer, know that they're actually quite separate and distinct. Um, I know we're going to talk about appealing for additional financial aid under special circumstances separately. So today, let's focus only on that money that's awarded as a part of the admission process. Okay. So with that in mind, you just mentioned that this is money that admissions is often awarding, right? So is that who you should go to or is it still the financial aid person? Who, where do you start when you're going to ask for more money? That's a great question. So realistically, 
if if you are talking about merit only, the only thing you're questioning or the only thing you're requesting is merit, you would definitely go back to the admissions office that made that particular offer. Now, I don't want to confuse matters, but if it is something that you're reaching out to both admission and financially because there's some appeal grounds as well, there's nothing wrong with doing both. Mm-hmm. But if we're strictly talking about merit, you would definitely reach out directly to the admissions office. Now, that's the starting point. We often get questions, who exactly should I be dealing with? And there's a lot of answers to that question. But the primary, the first answer that I always give is if your student has established a rapport or relationship with an admission counselor or an assistant director or whatever it might be called at that particular school who's handling their application, that's the person, the person they should start with first. That person may tell them, I don't handle this. You need to go directly to the committee or to the director. Then certainly you would pass that information forward. The reason you want to start with somebody who may or may not have, um, or who, who may have been a part of the, the student's application is they may or may not be given the opportunity to advocate for that student mm-hmm. in additional money. So um, it, it's just sort of the, the first place to start. In the absence of that, you just go directly, usually to the director of admission. Um, often we encourage you to start maybe with a phone call, um, but do know that more times than not, you're going to be asked to follow up with something in writing. Okay. And, um, you know, one thing, one point I wanted to make a little bit earlier, not to completely interrupt the flow here, but um, we talk about this money, we ca- it's called scholarship money. Um, a very good friend of mine whose daughter's applying to college uh, this year, she's mm-hmm. a senior, texted me and probably about a month ago because her daughter was getting acceptances and she was so shocked because she was getting scholarship money. And she's like, this is so amazing. Why are they giving us scholarship money? And, you know, her daughter is lovely and wonderful and has earned every bit of this recognition. But I did sort of say to her, because she's a close friend, and I was like, really, what they're doing is they're discounting their price. 100%. Right? It sounds fancy. It sounds really exciting. Like, oh, my goodness, a great scholarship. But what they're really doing is saying, we think you'll come if we knock 10% off of our price or whatever it is. And that's essentially what they're doing, right? So, which is why you can kind of ask for a deeper discount in some cases. So, yes. I mean, the short answer to that question is yes. There's a lot of layers and nuances to it. So when 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 families think about scholarship dollars, just know that they're never going to hand you any money. They're going to reduce your yes. price by that amount. A really interesting way to think about it is leveraging the dollars that they have for the students they want for whatever reason that might be. Kind of exactly what you said, but in a different way. So let me kind of give an illustration. Um, You know, folks probably remember that you and I both have juniors. Mm -hmm. And we, of course, are looking at schools where our students might qualify for some type of merit scholarship. So in doing that, we're looking for those schools who might be looking for our kids. So what does that mean? Well, it could mean, I won't say in my case, it could mean that perhaps the student is extraordinarily talented in performing arts and sciences. And they might qualify for some merit based on talent. Or mm-hmm. maybe um, they're applying to schools that are looking for some sort of diversity. So, for example, maybe one of our kids is going to apply to Montana and not a lot of kids from Massachusetts apply for Montana. Right. Yes. So, do know that while it's a scholarship and certainly be cr- proud of your kids for helping reduce your overall cost, know that schools are using it in very strategic ways to lure the students that they think are going to come. Right. I think it's great. a great point. And I would also like our listeners to know that Stacey and I 
literally had this conversation yesterday, <laughs> yesterday. <laughs> about these colleges. And lest you think we've got this all, we give we can give great advice, but it's always a thing when you are going through it yourself with your own kid. And I've no doubt we come out the other side even better prepared to help families um, through this process and hopefully successful with our own kids. So um, are there specific strategies you want to consider when asking for more, right? We've already talked about who do you go to and why, but when you're asking for those bigger discounts, you know, what are some strategies that you suggest? Yep. It's funny. We, you, you teed this up perfectly because we kind of had to talk about why schools give this money to really understand the best way to go through the process. So mm-hmm. we've already said, definitely go back and ask, but like any negotiation, you want to go in from a position of strength. Mm-hmm. So you know, when you go into a car dealership to maybe trade in a car, you're going to sort of present your trade in as the best possible car. You want to do the exact same thing when you're negotiating uh, with schools around merit. So a couple of things. It's really advantageous if you have a position of strength or leverage to bring to the table. So what does that really look like? Well, generally what that means is you are bringing an offer from a similar or competitive school or competing school to that school to say, wow, you know, your competitor across town or wherever is offering us this, would you be willing to reconsider your offer? Mm -hmm. Um, Position of strength is always the best point, is is always the best position in, in in a negotiation. So it's really important for you to recognize which schools are similar. You don't want to take, so you've probably worked with us or heard heard from us before that we sort of categorize our schools in sort of that reach or challenge, the just right, the no problem. You're not going to tell a challenging school that you have an offer from no problem. They're not going to care. Right. So what you want to do is you want to really leverage those schools that compete with one another to, to pit them against each other. Right. And, and um, I, this is different because in, in the Ivies, there is no merit money. It is all based on financial aid. But if a student had a financial aid award from another Ivy or what Penn considered as a peer institution, so an MIT, a Stanford, whatever, and they brought that financial aid award that was perhaps a little bit better, maybe it had a little bit more grant aid or, um, you know, a, just it was better for the family, they would ask, is it possible, could you come into line? That was the wording that we used, come into line with this offer. But if it came from a school that we didn't consider a peer institution, the response was no, we weren't going to change the makeup of the financial aid office offer, but we might if it was a peer institution, because our theory was that they we all use similar formulas and so we must have missed something and so we would ask for a little bit more information and try try our best to make it so they were choosing based on the school and not on the financial aid officer office this is obviously a little bit different cuz we're talking about merit money here how the heck do you know right because one person's reach is another person's safety is another person's challenge right. so how do you know who competitors are so there's a couple of ways you can really kind of do some of that research. I think, you know, there's a lot of, com- often you sort of have gone through the process and by the time you have offers, you have a sense of what your, 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 your student safety, your, your students, mm-hmm. um, you know, no problem schools were. So you start there. I think certainly you can do some research, look at, you know, some of the websites that, that we've referred to before, maybe bigfuture.collegeboard.org and look to see what the approval rates are at each mm-hmm. of these schools. If both schools are approving in the, you know, 
X percent, 45, 60, whatever percent, and they both show that they identify as somewhat competitive or whatever the, mm-hmm. the metric might be, that's, that's a fairly decent jumping off point. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that's something that you definitely want to take into consideration. And you could also ask a college counselor at your yeah. school. Um, the FIS guide also will yeah. um, often list, you know, schools that are similar to this school. Um, that's not a guarantee that they actually are competitors because in some cases it might be schools that are similar, but less selective right. or more selective. Um, but excuse me, in those cases, those are some other ways, right. That you could, um, yep. you could try to figure that piece out yep. and worst case scenario, you bring an offer from a school that they don't consider a competitor and the school says, thanks very much, but no, right. Yep. Again, Absolutely. Absolutely. They're not going to adjust your offer just because you asked, you had the gall to ask for more. It's yep. fine. And they may say no. What about timing? When should you be reaching out to these schools? So this is a very interesting question, only because this is a very unusual time. And I don't think I need to tell anybody that. But <laughs> realistically, most of the time, I probably would have suggested that folks wait until they have the majority of their offers or the offers they know they want to look at side by side Mm -hmm. before approaching schools. I'm not 100% sure I would head in that direction this year. I definitely am not suggesting anybody wait to the last minute only because schools have been through a lot in the last couple of years or last year. We know that in, in some cases, schools, finances are what they are. And when they have expended their funds, they've expended their funds. Right. So, you know, I'm pretty confident this year in saying if you feel like you have the offers that you want to compare, or you know what, we haven't mentioned maybe not having other offers, just wanting to ask, I would say whenever you feel like you're ready, it's time to do it. Mm -hmm. I would not suggest waiting to the last minute this year. What I would suggest is if you make your attempt, you go back to the schools and they might come back and say, we'll give you X, we'll give you Y, not at this time, or simply no. There's nothing that stops you from going back one more time a little bit later in the process. I just don't want to have folks lose the opportunity now because they want to sort of play the waiting game. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's it's not unusual for folks to go back more than once. There are some schools that might, let me give a sort of very specific, we might say, if you have your competing offers, go now. Right. But then you might also go back sort of beginning to mid-April because you know that we're looking at a May 1 deadline and that the school's numbers aren't where they want them to be they may take another look. Right. Um, so that's, a, that's another possibility. But this year, unlike other years, I'm suggesting, or our, our entire team is suggesting, if you're ready, then you should probably be prepared to get it together and submit those requests. Got it. Here's another thing that I think about is, um, you know, as a parent, you're going back, you're asking for more. Should it be kind of like the sky's the limit? Do you want to put a number on there of how much money you want? Um, is that helpful? Could that hurt you? What do you think? So the, the, the answer that I always give to that question is be realistic. Mm-hmm. If the school has given you $1,000 and another school has given you twenty five, <laughs> the twain will not be met. No. So, right. <laughs> you know, be realistic. Know what your breaking or walk away point is. If you go back and ask for more, ask for a comparison, and the school gives you whatever they're willing to give you, and you're not willing to pay that, then you need to walk away. Mm-hmm. Um, or up, certainly ask again. But, uh, you know, it, it very often you, you can put a number out there. They're going to give what they're going to be willing to give. There are going to be metrics that they're still going to follow. It's not sort of an open blank checkbook. Um, and, and again, it's not always successful. We have found in our history that, we find, that, that often we find about 40% of the schools 
will be willing to come back and, and reconsider. But they won't always reconsider at the dollar value that you've asked for. So just right. know that it could be some, it could be part, it could be none. Well, you know, one of the th- one of the tips that I I know we have talked about in the past is. Um, you know, let's say legitimately you have a school you would attend if they would give you 2000 more a year, that would be the difference maker. And that could be valuable information to share, right? 100%. So if you give me that extra t- two, I'm signing and we're committing today. Maybe they would have only given you 1500 and they're willing to add that another $500 on there. Yep. But just because you have laid it out and been very specific and shown that you really are interested, of course, don't do that. And then not sign on the dotted line, right? right? Absolutely. So that's the other piece that I would, the, sort of the last important piece of the conversation is, what do you say and who says it, right? So if you're going back, my advice is whoever will best advocate on behalf of your student should be the one having the conversation with the admission officer. Mm-hmm. I would say that if the student is comfortable doing it and they have that rapport, they should be doing it. Yeah. If the student is going to walk in, stammer, say money and walk out, <laughs> then you can do it on their behalf. And and, right. and by walk, I mean, obviously, the conversation. Um, you should also be very willing to sort of put down whatever your reality is. Don't be afraid to say, X school, you are absolutely my student's first choice. We need X. Mm-hmm. Um, be very forthright. Be polite. And then the other thing I would say that I think is probably goes without saying, give them some time. Most of these folks meet you know, we'll review and then meet in committee. It could be once a week. It could be once every two weeks. Submit your request. Wait a measurable period of time. I usually say at least two weeks. Mm-hmm. And then if you need to follow up, you can. Um, but obviously do it all with, you know, great respect. Um, if the answer is no, the answer is no. And then you have to make your decision based on whatever information you have. You know, one one last tip that I think I would put, throw out there is, is it it's a phone call is it a letter? If it's a letter, is it a form letter or is it something more from the heart that's personal to you? So it can start with a phone call. And sometimes it's easier to do that because then whomever you're working with, if it is somebody you have a rapport with, they might say, listen, this is exactly what you need to put in writing. Um, if it's if it's a if it's a document, first check and make sure the admission office doesn't have something on their site that is a, you know a reconsideration of funds. Pretty rare. Then sort of the 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 I would always suggest do it in writing. I would do it from the heart. If there are things you need them to know, something that has changed since the last time you've been in touch with them that may impact your scholarship, get it in there and then and then let them respond. Awesome. Stacy. thanks so much for being with us today. My pleasure. Um, thanks for all my guests today for joining us. Next week, Ian is hosting and actually... Um, Sally's going to be there and Shannon is going to be there and they're going to be discussing Jeffrey Salingo's book, uh, Who Gets In and Why? A Year in College Admission. So don't miss it. And don't forget, we are here every week at 4 p.m. Eastern and 1 p.m. Pacific. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and the team of experts at Bright Horizons College Coach. Join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.